0: Well, hello everyone from our side. It is wonderful to be with you again. I've trusted as we dive into God's Word that you'll be blessed, enriched, challenged, and that your relationship with the Lord will be deepened. If you've been with us for some time, you'll know that we're in a series called Kings and Kingdoms, and we're systematically working through the book of One Kings. And today we're in chapter 18. This is somewhat of an exciting chapter. It's a chapter that's filled with subtle humor. It's a chapter that's filled with anticipation and excitement and it is a chapter that's also full of some very deep and serious truths that I believe God wants for us to ponder upon and apply to our lives today but before we dive right into it just want to give a bit of background and context and just let you know how I'm going to set this message up so this message we're going to unpack under four headings one it's going to be a faith that works that'll be point 1 a faith that works point number 2 will be dealing with spiritual injury and death Point number three will be the worthlessness and the uselessness of idols. And point number four will be the power of God. And then we'll bring it to conclusion. So that's how we're going to structure it today, just so you know where we're going. But a bit of context, a bit of background quickly. Uh, We pick up in chapter 18 of 1 Kings with God's people struggling and suffering in the middle of a drought that's gone on for about three and a half years. Now, the reason why they're in the drought is self-inflicted, It's because of them and their wickedness, particularly the wickedness of King Ahab, who was the wickedest, wickedest, the most evil and the most wicked king that has ever existed or had ever reigned or ruled um, Israel. Shelly spoke about that two weeks ago, uh, and he was really horrific and horrendous. And because of that, God had said uh, to the prophet Elijah, who was a prophet to God's people at that time, that he was to leave Israel and to go into the wilderness, And Elijah's leaving uh, the people of Israel and going into the wilderness was also symbolic of God's word and God's presence leaving them. And God had said to Elijah, I'm not going to cause it to rain. There won't even be any dew on this land until I say the dew and the rain come back. So that's the backdrop. That's the scene that's been set. And we pick up where God now says to Elijah, I want you to go back to the people of Israel. Go back to Ahab and tell him that the rain is going to come back. But before the rain comes back, God is going to destroy their idols and the concept of their gods. There's going to be a battle of the gods, so to speak, and God's going to turn the hearts of his people back to him. That's really what chapter 18 is all about. But before we even get to this battle, before we get to this climax and the high point of chapter 18, we're introduced to a really obscure character in the scriptures. And he's obscure because no one really knows him. This is the first time we meet him. It's the last time we meet him. And his name is Obadiah. Now, what we learn from Obadiah is that faith is a faith that should be working. Obadiah was a man who had a faith to stand, to serve God, despite the circumstances he found himself in. And that's point number one today. Having a faith that works and what we can learn From Obadiah from 1 Kings chapter 18. So, picking up from verse 5, we see King Ahab, he says to Obadiah, one of his men who served in the palace Look, things are really bad. There's no rain. Our economy is shot to pieces. Our livestock are dying. We have no wealth. We need to make a plan. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go out. We're going to look for any patch of green grass we can find. I'm going to go this way. You go that way. And if we find grass or any patch of greenery, let's come back, report on it, and let's take whatever livestock we have left to go and to feed on that grass to save what little we have left. So Ahab goes one way and Obadiah goes another. On Obadiah's uh, journey, as he's searching for this green grass, he happens to bump into Elijah. And Obadiah is overwhelmed with shock. He's like, Elijah, is that you? Almost squinting and trying to like, figure out if it's really him or not, or if he's just hallucinating. And Elijah says, yes, it is me. And now you must understand that Elijah has been missing for three and a half years. No one has been able to find him. And the fact that he shows up is a miracle in and of itself. And so Obadiah is thrust into this situation that he never would have thought to find himself in. And listen what happens from there. Elijah says to Obadiah, it is me and I have a task for you. You're looking for grass. I want you instead to go back to Ahab and tell him that you found me. And what is so ridiculously funny now in hindsight is looking at the way Obadiah responded. Listen to what he says to Elijah. He said to Elijah, when Elijah said to him, go and call Ahab, he said, how have I sinned? From verse nine, how have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say he is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I have gone from you, the spirit of the Lord will carry you to who knows where. And so when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth, has it not been told to my Lord what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? How I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here and he will kill me. You've really got to appreciate the subtle humor here. As Elijah gives Obadiah this responsibility to go and tell Ahab, Obadiah has a bit of a mini freak out. And he says, Elijah, you cannot be serious. You've got to be joking. I'm going to go tell Ahab that I found you. Don't you know that every nation that he called to look for you and every city and people group that he said go and look for Elijah to, when they came back and they said they couldn't find you, he made them swear an oath that they couldn't so that if they were lying, he would kill them. Now, I'm going to go tell him the Spirit of the Lord is going to come, bloops, take you away. And I don't know where you're going to go to. I'm going to come back here. I'm going to say, You were right here. This is where you're standing. Look, there, are his treadmarks. They're his slop marks in the sand. And Ahab's going to say, Well, where is he then? And I'm going to say, I don't know. And then he's going to kill me. Don't do this to me, Elijah. Don't you know that I fear the Lord? Don't you know that I've served him? Haven't you heard about how I've done what I could do to save the prophets of God by hiding them in a cave and feeding them with bread and water? And Elijah says to him, don't worry, I'm still going to be here. But I think it's very interesting the way that this chapter starts with an introduction to Obadiah. Because here's someone that doesn't really carry much notoriety. Here's someone who isn't really well known. He's just what we would call an average Joe working in the palace of the most wicked king of Israel. But I think he's mentioned to us because he's a man who takes the opportunities that are presented to him that are in front of him to serve God despite the circumstances he finds himself in. He uses the opportunities that are in front of him to preserve God's people. And what I think we need to see and what is very interesting is that we're introduced to Obadiah right in the middle of the story of the great Elijah. Obadiah is not a leader. He's not a prominent leader. He's not well known. He's not a king. He's not a major prophet. Obadiah is just some random guy serving in the midst of tough times. But scripture identifies him and lifts him up and elevates him and and, and recognizes him for his attitude and hard work for the kingdom of God. Obadiah was about building the kingdom of God and not his own kingdom, which is juxtaposed to Ahab who wanted everything for himself. Obadiah, we're told, realizes the opportunities in front of him and takes advantage of what God has given him to do and does it to the best of his ability. And God recognizes him for that. And this really is a great picture for us as God's people as we're introduced to Obadiah to recognize that not all of us are going to be Elijah's, most certainly not, but we can most certainly recognize and see ourselves as becoming modern day Obadiahs who take the small and medium and large opportunities perhaps that we're presented with to serve God whenever they come our way for the glory of his name and not be consumed with wanting to be bigger and better than what we should be. So often, I think we excuse ourselves and um, abdicate responsibility because we look at the task at hand and we think it's too big. We think that we're not strong enough as leaders. We think that we're not anointed enough. We look at people around us and we go, that's a great leader. That's an anointed person. That's a gifted person. They're empowered and I'm not. And my role and responsibility is to come and to sit and to receive and not to give because I don't feel like I've got anything to give. We think, not me, not I, surely not I. How can God be calling me to anything of significance? If people knew just how I wrestled with doubt and wrestled with fear and just how insufficient and and inadequate I am, they wouldn't expect anything of me. I most certainly don't expect anything of myself, you might think about yourself. But what you need to realize is this, that even when there's an Elijah, there is also an Obadiah. Someone who takes the small opportunities to serve God whenever they come their way and does it to the best of their ability and with excellence for the glory of God. All of us have something that we can do. Every single one of us has a God-given responsibility. There is kingdom work that you and I can do. And it may appear that someone's kingdom work is more significant than the work you've been given, but it is work given to you by the Lord and by the King nonetheless. And we should be busy about doing the work of God. But I saw that there was work to do and did it think that's the lesson that's what we need to be taking away from this he didn't assume someone else was going to do it he didn't look at the church directory and think "Mm, that person's better let me get them to do it he looked at what was in front of him and thought this is mine to do and someone may have done it better someone might have done it in a different way but he did it the way he knew how to and God honored him for that again Obadiah is not a prophet he's not a king he's not very well known He's a man that we meet once and don't meet again. He's not the Obadiah that we read about later on in Scripture. I really feel that God is calling us through this introduction in chapter 18 to look at our own lives, to recognize the significance of the work of Obadiah and to know that there's work that you and I have to do. There's work that we all need to be doing together collaboratively to draw, and to, introduce, to draw people into our church community, to introduce people to Jesus by preaching the gospel, giving of our time, serving, giving of finances, giving of energy so that the kingdom of God may be built. We're all called to be like Obadiah, to serve well and to make a mark no matter how big or small. So that's what we learned from Obadiah and that was point one. And then we flow into point two and that's called or I've entitled it, Avoiding Spiritual Injury and Death. And so after this introduction with uh, Obadiah to Elijah, and after that scene, Obadiah goes off and Elijah says to him, don't worry, I am going to be here. You can call Ahab, you're not going to die. So off he goes, he calls Ahab. And Ahab approaches from a distance and he sees Elijah. And in a very ironic twist of events, he says to Elijah, hey you, is that you Elijah, you troubler of Israel? Ahab gives to Elijah this title, Troubler of Israel. You can imagine how he thought about Elijah. You just disappeared, caused all this trouble for us. And now you're back. You're such a troubler. And Elijah responds by saying to him, I have not troubled Israel, but you have. And your father's house has, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the balls. In other words, everything that's happening here that's bad, King Ahab, is because of you. You want to call me the troubler of Israel. I've been obedient to the Lord. You're the troubler of Israel. Because of your wickedness, the nation is in ruins. You can imagine, though, that at the same time that Ahab is frustrated with Elijah, he is also pretty relieved because the rain's coming back. And you can imagine King Ahab thinking to himself, well, this is great. I don't care how much animosity exists between me and this guy. Bring back the rain. Let's save my political campaign. Let's save my political career. Let's get some wealth going and rebuilt in this land so we can have more of what we used to have. And so that's exactly what Ahab does. He listens to Elijah because Elijah tells him that, hey, I want you to go and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel. And the 450 prophets of Baal and the 450, or the 400 prophets of Asherah who ate at Jezebel's table. And then in verse 20, we see Ahab said, what says about Ahab that he sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. So he does what Elijah wants him to do. Now, this is where it starts to build. You can imagine the anticipation of the people who are seeing Elijah for the first time in three, three and a half, four years. You can imagine that they realize and that they've been told that rain is coming back but something's going to happen first. They don't quite know what, but something is going to happen and there's anticipation and excitement in the air. But Before anything really significant happens, before the showdown really begins between Elijah and the prophets of Baal, Elijah first preaches to the people and challenges and exposes their hearts. And this is what he says before the climax of the chapter is reached. He preaches to God's people and you can imagine him looking around at all of them surrounding him. He says, how long will you go on limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. And the people did not answer a word. I really love this because before anything, like I said, significant happens, Elijah preaches the word that. straight at the heart of God's people. He says you have got a spiritual disability. You're limping around. Your heart is here. Your heart is there. You serve God. But then you also serve the bowls and the Asherahs. And what's happening is you have a spiritual disability because of that. You're limping around spiritually. Your heart is divided. And this needs to stop. If God is God, then you need to serve Him. You can't amalgamate your belief in the bowls and the Asherahs with the belief in God. The God of Jacob, Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so he presents a challenge to them. He says, if God is God, follow him. If Baal is God, then follow him. But stop this hypocrisy of jumping around between the two. And the amazing thing is, the sad thing is, the response from the people is not yes and amen, okay, we'll choose. The answer is silence. Silence. And the silence speaks to the fact, the very sad fact that they probably didn't really know who the true God was. They may have wanted to choose. They may have once known, but somehow in their distant memory, it was like it had got lost. That God was the one true God and now they were unsure. And so they stand silent. I think it's a powerful message that Elijah gives and it's a common message throughout scripture. Choose whom you are going to serve and that wasn't just a message relevant for them back then it's a relevant it's 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 a message relevant for us today stop limping between the gods that you want to serve and that are being served by you in your life and turn to the living god if you acknowledge him as god serve him repent of your idol worship and get rid of it and I think nowadays we don't build idols the way that they did then out of gold and silver and precious stones or out of wood and worship them. Our, our gods look a little bit different. The gods of comfort, the, god of, the gods of pleasure, the gods of convenience, perhaps the god of family or career or wealth or success or power or prestige. All of these, if we make them the center of our lives, pull us away from God and rob us of the opportunity of serving the one true God and God diagnoses our hearts and says, if you've made these things, the be all and end all in the center of your lives, the apex of your life, you have a spiritual limp. Your diagnosis is you're spiritually disabled and you need to repent of that, be healed and come back to me. And church, I want, I want you to hear what I'm saying. I'm not saying that to be comfortable and to have comforts is wrong or to seek legitimate godly pleasure is wrong or to have the conveniences of this modern world in our home and part of our lives. I'm not saying that's wrong. Not wrong it's not wrong to have a family or a career or success or power. It's wrong when those things become the pursuit of our lives, when we trust in those things and our dependence is upon those things. When that happens, we are worshipping idols. When all of our mind and all of our hearts is bent on achieving those things. Those have become idols in our lives. And they've supplanted God. And the Lord says, you're spiritually weak if that is the truth for you in your life. Repent. Turn away. Elijah calls the people then back to the truth about following God. And we're called today as well to diagnose ourselves. Allow God to diagnose us. And find out whether we're walking with a spiritual limp. Because following after an idol is worthless and it will lead to spiritual death if it is not dealt with. Which leads to point number three. This is exactly what Elijah wants to do. He wants to reveal the emptiness and the utter worthlessness of idols. So point number one was learning to have a faith like Obadiah. Point number two was dealing with the spiritual Limp and avoiding spiritual death. And point number three is just how worthless our idols are. The worthlessness of idols. So this is where the showdown begins for Elijah and the, and the prophets of Baal. In verse 22 onwards we read, Then Elijah said to the people, I even I only am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. So Elijah starts to set this up in a very significant way. He starts to build this up. He says, look, guys, we're going to see whose God is really God, but just understand it's me and it's you. There's 450 of you and just one of me. I'm seriously outnumbered. You have the advantage. If it was up to us to have a fight to fight it out, you know, I'm going to lose. But I want to draw your attention to the fact that it's got nothing to do with numbers because our gods are going to battle each other. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about the gods that we serve and who will come out tops. So he goes on in verse 23. He says, this is what we should do. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire. He is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Yes, this is a good idea. Let's do this. So Elijah says to them, well, because you have home ground advantage, you guys, you 450, you go first. And you can imagine Elijah at this point, pulling up a piece of wood or log and putting up against a a stone or turning it into a bench somehow and sitting down and getting ready to spectate and to witness the spectacle that was about to unfold before him. You can imagine Elijah sitting down, knowing he was right, knowing he was going to win and watching 450 people absolutely waste their time. Verse 26. I love it. I love it because really the theme of, Of this message and of this chapter. It says. And they took the bull. The prophets of Baal did. They took the bull that was given them. And they prepared it. And called upon the name of Baal. From morning until noon. The whole day. From morning until lunchtime. They're calling. And they're calling. And they're calling. And they're saying. Oh Baal answer us. Baal answer us. Speak to us. Consume this offering. But here's the crux of the matter. But there was no voice. No voice. And no one answered, and they limped around the altar that they had made. You've got to love it when you're right. I love being right. I'm not always right, and often I'm humbled, and I'm sure you can relate when you're in an argument, and or in a discussion, and you know you're right, and the other person's wrong. It's very difficult to stay humble in those moments, but we can appreciate being right. We don't like to be wrong. But there are times when you just know you're right, it's not even a debate. Uh, for example, if, if I had a car without an engine and I was having a debate with someone and saying that this car won't start and they were saying it would start, it doesn't matter whose opinion is what, we just know the car is not going to start and the person who believes it's not going to go anywhere is right. And the person who believes it can go somewhere and will start can try all they want, it's just never going to happen. And that's the sort of ridiculous situation that Elijah finds himself in with the prophet Sabaal. He knows he's right. Their God is not going to answer because their God does not exist. You can imagine what's happening in the spiritual realm where all of heaven is watching what's going on. You can imagine Satan bound, stressing out, freaking out and terrified because God is present. And Satan knows that he's powerless to do anything because he's subject to the authority and the sovereignty of God. And the prophets of Baal are crying out to an imaginary God absolutely they're forces of darkness that are at work and we know that they were actually worshiping demons but they don't know that they think there's this God that exists who's going to answer them but there really isn't like there really wasn't an engine in the car in the analogy that I showed you and they're trying to turn the engine on but there's nothing there and the prophets of Baal are crying out into empty space and God is watching and either Satan is there and he's bound or he has fled like he often does he sets us up for failure and when The tacky hits the tar, he disappears and leaves you stranded. Prophets of Baal are speaking into nothingness. And we can appreciate the humor. If you can't appreciate the humor here, you really don't have a humor bone in your body at all. But Elijah begins to start ripping into them. In verse 27, and at noon, Elijah mocked them saying, cry louder, for he is a God, isn't he? Maybe he's so high up there, you need to shout louder, louder so that he can hear you. Maybe where he lives is too far away from where we are now, so shout louder. Maybe he's musing, maybe he's thinking about something, maybe he's deeper, deep, deep in thought. Or maybe he's relieving himself, maybe he's gone to the toilet. Just, just hold on a second maybe. Or, or, or shout louder because maybe the toilet door is closed. Or perhaps he's on a journey. He is God. He's tired. He's done a lot of hard work. You guys have been worshiping him for a long time. You are a wicked bunch. Maybe he needs a break from you. Maybe he's gone on a journey. Maybe he's gone to this part of the world or that part of the world. Call louder. Maybe he'll come back. Or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And this irritated them because you can see it says that they cried out even louder and they began to cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. Now it's gone from morning to afternoon to evening. And notice these words But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. I wonder at what point the people who had come to spectate had now become weary and lost interest and began to fall asleep. What a sight it must have been! What a picture! It was Yet, it's also a picture and a true story for us today and reminds us and highlights for us the insignificance, the utter worthiness, worthlessness and emptiness of our idols. And this is exactly what God and Elijah in this moment want his people to see. This is exactly what the Lord wants us to see today. Idols provide absolutely nothing. And so often we can fall into the same trap as God's people back then and think that the things of this world are somehow going to meet the needs in our lives and in our heart that only God can meet. Somehow we think that they're going to provide a solution for us to our deepest problems. That they're going to provide for us more than what God can. So we deceive ourselves into thinking if I just had more money, if I just had a better job, if I just had a different career, if I just had more possessions, if I just got married, I'm single. So to be happy and to provide and to be who I want to be. I need to be married. And if you're married, you just think, well, if we just had children, we'd be better. Our marriage would be better. We'd be tighter. We'd be, more, we'd be more fulfilled. If we just had this, if we just had that, and the list continues ad nauseum to the point where maybe we can't list anything anymore that we think would fulfill us. And even if we engage in all of those things, apart from God, there is no fulfillment. And those things might bring happiness and might bring a bit of excitement for a while. And again, there's nothing wrong with these things. But when we look to them for our hope and our source of security and meaning in life, we fall utterly short. They fall utterly short because they are not God. Our wicked hearts can sometimes refuse to see the emptiness in the pursuits of this world. We allow ourselves to be blinded by the God of this world so that we continue pursuing our passions rather than pursuing Jesus. Idols are empty We need to repent if we have any in our lives and start serving God. Which leads us to the final point for today, point number four, the power of God. You see, as much as there's utter emptiness and worthlessness in serving idols, there is absolute power and fulfillment in the Lord God Almighty. Our God is powerful and able. And that's eventually what's on display for everybody on Mount Carmel and for us today as we read these words. From verse 30 onwards, it says, Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me, and all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in, in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two sears of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars of water, and pour it on the burnt offering on the wood. Now you must understand they're in the middle of a severe drought. Water was scarce. I don't know where this water came from, but it is a indication that the prophets of Baal were only too happy to help not have Elijah succeed. Water was life. But they would rather pour the water on the altar to prevent his altar from setting fire than drink the water, which was life-giving. And maybe there's another message in that, but I just wanted to point that out. And this doesn't happen just once. It happens three times. And he says, and do it a second time. And they did. He says, now do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And verse 35, the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Listen to what Elijah says here. Note the stark contrast between what he says and what the prophets of Baal have been doing for the whole day. Elijah just says, let it be known this day that you are a God in Israel. That I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up all the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. What a powerful and significant picture of the power of our God, the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob. He alone is God. I want us to pay attention to the fact that Elijah doesn't do what the prophets of Baal do. He doesn't scream out to God. He doesn't have to start dancing some ridiculous dance. He doesn't cut himself and spill his blood. No, Elijah just simply talks to God. And what we need to take away from this is our God is powerful. We don't have to conjure him up. We don't have to conjure up his power. We don't have to approach him you know, uh, with specific words said in a specific way. You don't have to stand on your head to do some funny dance. You don't have to be someone special. You don't have to do some crazy ritual. You don't have to come, like I said, with the right words in the right order to have God listen and to hear. You just have to talk to God. God is waiting to hear from you and to hear from me. He's waiting. He's listening. And we're invited because of the blood of Jesus into a conversation with him. There's the other, well, there's another, and this is the final final thing I'll say today. There's another really beautiful truth revealed in the display of God's power on Mount Carmel that day. And it's the fact that our God is a gracious and loving God. Elijah says, and I want you to catch this. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you are the Lord, the God, or that, that that you, O oh Lord, are oh God. And this is the key point, the key part, that you have turned their hearts back. I want them to know that you are the one who has turned their hearts back to you. So in the midst of one of the most wicked times of all of Israel, it's history. In the midst of the most wicked, some of the most wicked people ever, certainly the most wicked king ever. During that time when God's people were worshipping the Baals and the Asherahs. During this time, God comes to them and says, I want to turn your hearts back to me. This isn't God coming to kill them, and he would have been justified in doing so. Instead, this is God showing up in his power to reveal himself to his people so that their hearts would be turned back to him. God says, I am displaying my power for you on this mountain today so that your hearts would be turned back to me because I want you back. It's quite sad, though, that God has to perform a miracle to get his people to listen. And to obey, we can constantly be like the Pharisees in biblical times that are clamoring and constantly fighting and looking for a sign to prove that God loves us. But God will go to great lengths to draw His people back. God is the God who deserves—God is God who deserves our allegiance and our service, not our idols. You can't trust in idols, but you can trust in our God. His power, His grace, His love, His provision, and His work spoken over us. We need to realize that God has done a greater miracle in our lives today than He did on that mountain in Carmel thousands of years ago. The fire from heaven on that day was given in an effort to turn people's hearts back to Him. Yet today, an even greater miracle has been performed God has gone to even greater lengths to turn our hearts back to him. And we see this in the person, the work of Jesus Christ. The word became flesh. He dwelt amongst us. We have seen his glory. Scripture says he was born of the virgin. All of these things, miracles in and of themselves. He lives a sinless life. He reveals and reflects and radiates the exact character of God to us. Jesus does. He was killed. Murdered on a cross, buried, resurrected, raised back to life, and exalted to the right hand of the Father. And because of Him and His price, we can enter in freely because of His grace into a relationship with Him. That miracle so often, so sadly, gets ne- neglected and forgotten. Because of Jesus, God, His heart has been revealed. And it is obvious and plain for us to see that he has gone to extraordinary lengths to call us back to him and to have us in relationship with him. Church, the Lord is good and his love endures forever. We need to stop limping between God and whatever idols we have in our lives. We need to rip out the idols from our lives. And we need to be a people who are fully devoted to him, building his kingdom for his glory and not our own empires. May you be blessed, may you be challenged and may you be enriched today as you ponder more upon these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Bye.